and then, here and there, and always at sexpotcomedy.com. Next storyteller. Next storyteller. Next storyteller. Story Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. I have a quick plug here at the top of the episode. On July 31st at 7 p.m., my co-host Aaron Rollman will be performing at the fucking fabulous Fiction Fest, a literary festival and variety show at the Oriental Theater here in Denver. There'll be an adult spelling bee and slam poetry and circus performers and beer from Grimm Brothers Brewhouse and Fiction Beer Company and books and authors and storytellers and tarot card readers and oh man, it sounds like a blast. We'll have information available on our website and Facebook page, so please check it out. But I have a small confession. Way back when Nicole Sullivan at Book Bar first invited us to participate in the Fiction Fest, I quickly replied with an email that said, Um, no. No freaking way. Quote, I don't think it's a good fit for the narrators. Our shtick is true stories, never fiction. Fortunately, Aaron is much wiser than me and insisted that it's okay for us to be involved with the caveat that she would tell a true story about her life as a writer of fiction. I mean, as a playwright and actor, fiction is very real. But isn't that true for everyone? I mean, for years, I've talked about my own 80-20 rule. I believe that all stories, fiction and nonfiction, as well as most of our human experience, our interactions with people, our perceptions, our beliefs and memories are always roughly 80% true and 20% false. I mean, sometimes that's by design. We embellish or omit to make a story easier to understand or feel. But most often it's just this basic human flaw. We blur and edit reality without even noticing it. Back in April, the narrators collaborated with Musica Sacra, a 35-piece chamber orchestra here in Denver. They gave us three pieces of music and asked our storytellers to write something inspired by their music. And in exchange, we gave them three stories, and they chose three pieces of music to accompany them. We wrote and edited and memorized and rehearsed and revised and then rehearsed some more. Paragraphs were shifted out of their natural order to work with the music, and the orchestral arrangements were shuffled and modified to jive with the beats of the story. It was just this huge, dramatic departure from our typical routine. I wondered, you know, did we diminish the honesty of our stories by making them more theatrical? And I realized, I don't know, and I don't care, because the end result was just beautiful. And watching my fellow storytellers transform their personal stories into these sweeping, powerful performances, well, that was just one of the most real and most profound experiences of my entire life. And it made me embrace the fact that fiction is a true and wonderful part of everyday life. And I'm not just talking about fictional art, but daydreams and lies and misunderstandings, those truths of human existence which are inherently based in fiction on the you know on the worst of days these untruths of the world are all we have to lean on and i feel like i would never find enlightenment as an acceptable trade-off to the joys of my own imagination i 
I think I would also gladly forfeit enlightenment for just one day inside the mind of today's storyteller. Ellen K. Graham is a playwright and longtime favorite of the narrators. Her story was paired with Ralph Vaughn Williams' The Lark Ascending, which, for copyright reasons, we will not play in its entirety, but I promise you're not going to miss it. This story was recorded live at Augustana Arts on April 24th, 2015. The theme of the evening was Two-Way Street. Baltimore Harbor, summer, 1982. The water near the docks is crowded with boats, freckly families on sailboats, pontoons loaded up with tourists. Farther out, pleasure boats give way to industry, fishermen returning from the morning trawl. Still farther, tugboats and freighters, and then just along the blurry blue line of the horizon, ocean liners. My older sister nods at me with approval as we pump our scrawny legs in their knee-high athletic socks against the foot pedals, piloting our paddle boat through the Crayola blue water. The wind ruffles my sister's feathered hair. The sea air is lusciously heavy to our mountain lungs like a too rich dessert. The sky reels with gulls. The chumps on the shore may be smothering in the July heat and humidity, but not us. Among the chumps on the shore are our parents, two tiny figures rapidly receding from view. We draw a parallel to a freighter painted to, painted to resemble a grinning shark, all jagged teeth and a bloody red mouth and a leering cartoon eye. I begin to notice that we are almost beyond the semicircle of the bay. I don't know what prompted us to turn around and go back, but we did. When we reached the shore, our parents were not angry. They did not lecture us about safety. They did not ask us, what were you thinking? That's not the kind of parents they were. They seemed glad we decided to come back. <laughs> that was the year we drove to the East Coast all the way from Colorado. This is something that we did. Our parents decided they wanted to go somewhere, so we got in the car and we drove. First, the cast of characters. Mother, Francophile, former Girl Scout camp counselor, went away to college at 16 where she wore black turtlenecks and saw foreign films and theaters thick with cigarette smoke and the smell of old world sausages. Father, renaissance man, music lover, former golden boy, fixed cars and wrote poetry and went jogging every other day in his street clothes, sometimes including a black wool beret. <laughs> Sister, imaginative, methodical, fierce, overachiever beginning shortly after birth, <laughs> unafraid of dead animals. <laughs> Me, homebody, equally devoted to Little House in the Prairie and fantasy novels, dressed as an executioner for Halloween in the third grade, aspiring mime. <laughs> to our schoolmates, uh, my sister and I were as odd as immigrant children with our short hair and our petite blouses, the peanut butter and our sandwiches so virtuous and unadulterated it ripped holes in the equally virtuous bread. A childhood friend once remarked how there were never any toys at our house and how sad that was. Is it true that we had no toys? The fact of the matter is, we enjoyed things like turtle waxing our dad's 68 BMW and putting on Mannheim steamroller records and dancing around the living room. Toys were just uninteresting approximations of real things. The four of us were dissimilar but strongly bonded by our shared experiences like army recruits. We had a, an ancient green and yellow canvas tent that leaked in the rain, inadequate sleeping bags, and a finicky Coleman stove that had to be lighted just so. 
We hiked in tennis shoes and we skied in jeans. And when we finally outgrew the BMW, we climbed the mountain passes in a white Chevy van our dad nicknamed the milk truck. <laughs> On one occasion, after driving all night across the desert, we, my dad pulled the van into the parking lot at Santa Monica Beach, trying to wedge its unwieldy girth into a space there among all the El Caminos. And some beautiful shirtless man yelled out, Hey, man, nice ride. <laughs> It was, actually, but it didn't have air conditioning, so the following week when we cut back through Death Valley with the desert heat blasting through the open windows, our mother used a washcloth dipped in melted cooler ice to dab our fever-hot brows. I propped my forehead against the tinted glass and watched the asphalt rushing by. Every so often there'd be a blackened rectangle on the shoulder where a car had overheated and burst into flames. <laughs> We arrived in campgrounds late and drove around in the dark looking for a place to pitch our tent. In South Dakota, it was raining in suffocating sheets. We managed to put up the tent in the dark. And over the course of the night, the water penetrated the floor of the tent, and then our sleeping bags, and then eventually our pajamas. When the sun came up, we saw that we had pitched our tent at the bottom of a steep hill, <laughs> and the water had carved countless channels through the earth down the slope directly under our sleeping place. Well, we'd wrung out our wet things and, and hung them around the campsite to dry in the sun. A busload of delighted Japanese tourists stood on the ridge above, documenting our every move. <laughs> in Minnesota, we arrived after 11 and starving, so while we pitched the tent, our mother lit the finicky Coleman stove and made spaghetti. The air was hot and humid and riddled with mosquitoes as though mosquitoes had spontaneously generated from the air. They stormed our eyes and nostrils, crowded into our mouths, and we tried to speak. In the muggy dark, you couldn't see to swat. We sat down to eat our spaghetti in the watery light of the kerosene lantern. Was that pepper in the noodles, or...? <laughs> there was no way to eat one thing without the other. When we objected, our mother said something like, Oh, it's just some extra protein. <laughs> yeah. After so many nights on the road, eating spaghetti and cheese and crackers, and sleeping in the, um, outside, how we longed for the scratchy, cloyingly aromatic sheets of the Motel 6, or more importantly, a hamburger from a bona fide fast food restaurant. In rural Kansas, our parents agreed to treat us to a restaurant meal at a place called The Wagon Wheel. Regrettably, The Wagon Wheel served only Chinese food. <laughs> rural Kansas style. <laughs> when we weren't camping, we slept on the floors of the houses of our far-flung cousins. There was a California contemporary right underneath the Hollywood sign where they had a baby grand piano and little dishes of Jordan almonds on the side tables. Upper East Side apartments and Upper West Side brownstones. We were always the scruffy country mice. We once told a Chicago cousin who was forever talking about the Sears Tower as though he had personally built it from scratch that we'd only recently gotten electricity in Colorado. <laughs> he believed us. He shook his head at the horror. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> In New York, my older sister, who'd only gotten her driver's license about a month before, ended up, through our lack of understanding of eastern seaboard traffic, rocketing down the New Jersey turnpike into Manhattan. 
Imagine the delight of the pre-Giuliani stoplight window washers when the mud-spattered van with the Colorado plates and the teenager at the wheel pulled up to the light. It was in New York that someone finally broke into the van. They left their muddy footprints all over my spiral notebooks and they stole the stereo, my sister's brown university sweatshirt she had just purchased following a campus tour, and the finicky Coleman stove. Our parents crowed with pleasure, imagining it exploding in the thieves' faces. <laughs> One summer in high school, my sister escaped to France for a month. I wrote her a letter via her host family, detailing blow by blow the New Mexico trip we took in her absence. Night after night of, of damp monsoon camping in the leaky tent, the wet firewood that refused to burn and sent choking smoke directly to my eyes no matter where I sat, the insane Vietnam vet that kept us up all night with CCR blaring from his truck, the mad bull that walked through the campground at dawn, emitting a low growl of displeasure and swinging his massive head from side to side as we cowered in the tent, barely breathing, waiting for him to pass. This was pretty much the beginning of the end. Shortly after that, my sister turned 18 and left Colorado pretty much for good, and that was the end of the long-haul trips with all four of us. Aging had already begun to take its toll. When we were kids, everything was either an adventure or, an, or, or a challenge to be collectively met. But as adolescence crept in, so did the discontent. There was one trip when I was 14 that took us to Montreal, but I hardly remember being there. I was so preoccupied with the petty intrigue seething among the friends I left behind that I couldn't see what was in front of me. Stop walking around like a zombie, my mother said, and tears welled up in my eyes because I was a zombie, numb and absent, controlled by outside forces, in this case, a band of teenage girls with fishnet stockings and rat tails. I had fallen out of touch with all of them. Stories of these childhood trips baffled my husband. He was an Eagle Scout in Texas, where spending time outside is pretty much an endurance trial like a sweaty cage fight between man and chigger and cottonmouth and heat, heat, heat. He asked me once, why didn't you guys just go home? <laughs> the Eagle Scouts did not have this option, but we, ordinary civilians, did. Because that's not what we did. That would have been a violation of our creed, whatever that was, had we been born a hundred years from now. We would have packed up a dinged-up space pod. I can see my dad with his toolbox and the jumper cables, my mother in her headscarf packing up the cooler, and set out for the visible universe. As we breathed in the smell of decaying aspen leaves, burning cedar, the enveloping mist at Niagara Falls, we swam in Lake, Lake Michigan and Champlain, in Walden Pond and Oak Creek Canyon where the cold knocked your breath out. We stood on nighttime beaches, listened to the Pacific at Big Sur and La Jolla, the Atlantic at Thunder Hole, Teton's Grand Canyon, arches in the blistering heat, Bryce and Zion in the snow. 
We wandered among the graves of my father's Quaker forebears in Nantucket and tried to link our arms around the trunks of redwoods. We saw Alphabet City and Maxwell Street. We saw the Four Corners and the House of the Seven Gables and the consuming darkness of solitary confinement at Alcatraz. Once, I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked up at the sky uncomprehendingly, filled with something like terror, like an Old Testament terror the believers feel before their God. Looking up at the Milky Way, there's a photo of us from that 1982 trip. It's on the Staten Island Ferry with the Statue of Liberty in the background. Mother inordinately glamorous in her sunglasses and a striped top. Father looking dreamily out over the water. Sister quizzical as her beach blonde hair catches in her mouth. Me looking sidelong into the camera, my hair orderly in its two damp braids. Oh, my ragged, beautiful galaxy of four. When we had that van loaded up, it's like we could go anywhere that no road, no map could contain us. My mother always says, no one knows anyone. We're all alone. And she's right, because I long for the ones I love. Even when I'm with them, there's always a locked door, a secret chamber where you can't go. My father always says, we're all one. There is no separation. And he's right because my memories and those of my families are so intertwined. I don't know where mine end and theirs begin. My mother writing from 1960s Rome on the back of a Vespa. My father, the young soldier, stepping off the plane in Guam. My sister, lying alone in her tent in Montana, listening to the rain beat down and the bears moving through the underbrush. Things I have never seen, but nonetheless, I know. My sister always says, The universe is random. There is no plan. And she's right, because the only certainties are gravity and birdsong, the desert and the mountains, the ocean that opened up around us as we paddled, thrilling to our own power, anchored by the parents on the shore as we paddled out to sea. Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Aaron Rollman, Mary Robertson, and me, Ron Doyle. I produce and record the podcast with engineering assistance by Josh Johnson. And our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. The Narrators podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. The next time you need a photographer, remember From the Hip Photo. You can learn more about their honest and unforgettable service at fromthehipphoto.com. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by Breckenridge Brewery, making balanced, approachable, and interesting handcrafted beers in Colorado for over 25 years. Check them out at breckbrew.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on your favorite mobile podcatcher. For more information and to find past episodes, visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.